let's see. Okay. In theory, we should be live, but of course we require someone to acknowledge our existence. Give us some kind of approval. There we go. Someone just told us that we exist. So, and so we will actually start the, uh, the show in about another three minutes. So, hey everyone. Uh, so as you can tell, I'm here. I'm not in Japan as planned um, yet. Although my, I could still could, my flight leaves tomorrow, but I'm not going to go. So, um, I'm not super worried about getting coronavirus. Um, although it seems to be getting a little worse around the world, but, but also like they got a lot on their hands right now. And I don't think they need the additional responsibility of trying to take care of me and my son as we gallivant around the country. So I'm going to be a sort of a, a a good house guest and delay my visit until, uh, you know, they're, they've got things a little more, uh, a little more under control. So, and here's hoping they do. I've, I'm, uh, it's definitely sort of shifting to the next phase of, of what's going on. So, so yeah. yeah, so I know a lot of people were expecting me to, to be gone. I think Pamela was going to host tonight, but I'm, I'm still here and I'll be here for now. Uh, weeks, months, forever. Trip planned now f until June, I think. So, uh, I'm gonna say hi to a bunch of people. Hello to Andy Cowley, Aaron C, Bob Moeller, Brexit denier, Colin. Jo Brexit denier. I keep telling you, this happened. It just, it did. Colin Jones, David Fairweather, Dusty Reichwin, Horizon Brave, Ian Farkeron, John Victor, Johnny J, Johnny Z, Kevin Ayers, Larry Beckham, Martin Bradshaw, Miss Cooper, Nancy Graziano, Paranor, Rich Wilson, Sergio Botero, Susan Hunter, and whoa, I remember they used to say Zapfan, Zapfan. Are you there, Zapfan? Um, Aaron C. as well. So, yeah, um, you know, people are now chatting about this in the. Uh, um, yes, so, so much for our break from you, Fraser. I, I could take a break. No problem. Uh, hello to everyone on Twitch. Sorry, I don't see your names, but I know you're there and I appreciate your existence. Um, uh, yeah, like there's, you know, various countries are starting to shut down international travel routes. So it's, you know, it's getting a little weird. Most of it's fear, but uh, unreasonable fear. And at the same time now, we're, I think, you know, we have... 23 cases in Canada. There's more in the US. There's cases in almost, you know, all every country. Not South Africa, though. I was just checking. You guys are fine. So far. Yeah, for now, although it's his, it's, I think it hits Algeria yesterday. Yeah, from Egypt. So it's slowly crawling its way down. Give us another, I don't know, 10 years. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I've been apparently they're testing new uh, our new retrovirus technique is is being tested in China. It's apparently working. So you know, we're looking at anyway, let's hope this gets sorted out. Needless to say, my son's a little sad, but he understands. So I'll make it up to him. All right, uh, let's get on to the show. So I'll put you guys back into your spots. Get my intro ready. There's me. All right, here we go. 
Hello and welcome to the Weekly Space Hangout for Wednesday, February 26th, 2020. I'm Fraser Kane, publisher of Universe Today. This week, we're going to be talking about a large exoplanet with maybe the right conditions for life. Uh, tons of news coming out from NASA's Mars Insight Probe, a mission to Phobos, and uh, Catherine Johnson died. So we'll get into all of that this week on the Weekly Space Hangout. Joining me on my screen, uh, I've got, uh, let's see, Alan Versfeld. Alan, welcome back. Hi. Hey, yes, thanks. Nice to be back. Um, we've got uh, Moya McTeer. Moya. Hello. Good to be here. And uh, we'll get on to our special guest in a second. But before we do, I just want to remind all of you that if you want to uh, become deeper into this community that is the Weekly Space Hangout, you should go to the Weekly Space Hangout crew. They are our friends. They are our fans. They are the executive producers of the show. And so if you want to actually talk to astronauts, talk to space scientists, book them for the show, connect with your heroes. This is the way to do it. So go to wshspace.man, w, weekly space <laughs> hangout. Now I forget the, forget the URL, um, wshcrew.space. And they will hook you up, give you uh, all everything you need to know, have you join the community down here and uh, have you join us behind the scenes and be an executive producer of the show. All right, let's get on to our special guest this week. So joining us, we've got Zarina Salido. Zarina, welcome to the Hi. Weekly Space Hangout. Hi, thank you. Thank you for having me. So who are you? What do you do? I am Zarina, and I am the executive director of Time and Cosmology and the program director of Taking Up Space. And, and what I oh yes yeah well okay no this interview <laughs> does itself now so so what do you so what so what do you do yeah I send Native American girls to space camp in Huntsville Alabama so how did you get involved in this project um, well we were trying to find an outreach program and I went to a conference called Space Fest and if you haven't heard of it mm -hmm. it's an art show a autograph show and panel discussions. And they had a panel discussion on women in space. And they were talking about the disparity between men and women in science field, especially girls, young girls uh, around junior high age. So I had just gone to space camp as an adult and I'd come back, <laughs> it was so much fun. Yeah. <laughs> so cool. Yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> and a few days later I went to this conference and I thought, send kids to space camp, send mm -hmm. the girls to space camp. I enjoyed it as an adult. So I could imagine as a kid how much fun it would be. Yeah. Um, I see it, someone noted your Saturn V rocket on your shelf back there. So that's, yep. Yeah. They have that at space camp as a matter of fact. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you sort of had this, had this idea to, that you would, you know, that it would be a good idea to send Native American uh, people to, uh, to space camp. And then how did things unfold from there? Well, we are sending specifically girls. Mm -hmm. And uh, what we did is I went to the Bosco Yaki. Uh, so I am from Tucson. Mm -hmm. And the Yaki uh, reservation is on Tucson land. And so I went out there and started working with the kids, just trying to see where they were and what we could do for them. And, I mean, was there sort of the same level of space nerdery, um, <laughs> uh, you know, in the you know, among their, you know, among these groups as there is sort of in the, in the general population? 
Uh, not so much. As a matter of fact, when I first got there, um, we thought we would be working with junior high girls, but the junior high kids were just their teenagers and they were just not even having a part of it. And we were at the clubhouse and the only kids girls that would show up were the little ones. And so we had to rethink it a little bit and thought, you know what, maybe we need to start before junior high to actually make an impact. So at first it was actually difficult to find girls to send to space camp. Wow. So, you know, the nerdery level was not quite there. Not that yeah, high. I think. Um, no, so, you, so you potentially had budget, but not necessarily takers. We didn't have takers, yeah. And I thought, you know, it costs about 1500 to send a kid to space camp. Yeah. So I thought people would be really excited. But, and if you think about it, sending a kid across the country with a stranger may be a little bit of, of a hard sell at first. Yeah. And it was. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so how many kids, I mean, you know, since then, how, you know, you were able to finally work it out and, and get some people to go? Yes, we've been sending about three kids per year. Like I said, it's pretty expensive. And this year we're sending four. And uh, so we've had a, a good turnout now. And, and now we're actually asking for people to apply. Oh, that's great. As and opposed to having to pick up. As opposed to nagging them. Like, <laughs> yes, nagging the parents. Like following them around and going, are you sure your kid doesn't want to go to space camp? It's pretty great. Um, what is kind of the commitment? Like if you do end up going to space camp, how long is the process for a kid? It's, it's a lot. It's six days. Yeah. Uh, five nights and six days. And kids get homesick and that's a long time to be with parents. Uh, all of our kids in our first round were had never been away from the parents they had never left Arizona or been on a plane so it was it's a lot to take in um it's funny to me because I mean Arizona is actually a fairly um well sort of historied place for both human space flight and astronomy in general I mean there are some just incredible observatories so I mean is there a disconnection really between these kinds of facilities and the general lives of the kids that you were interacting with? You know, had they not gone on tours of the Flagstaff Observatory and things like that? Um, I don't think that it is that important. Uh, Native Americans have the highest high school dropout rate. It's at 47%. So that's, you know, one in two. So the statistics for um, graduating from high school are bad. So going on these tours to facilities doesn't quite happen. And the res is a little bit far away from the, you know, Tucson and the university where the Philander Planetarium is and the, the mirror lab. So it just doesn't quite have that connection, even though it's, you know, in their backyard. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, people probably don't know, but I actually um, grew up. Uh, so my, my parents split up when I was a kid. My my my, my stepfather was uh, was called First Nations in, in Canada, uh, from West Coast Salish, and so I kind of grew up half in both cultures. And the funny thing to me is that he's one of the people that got me super into space and science. He was a huge sci-fi nerd. He was one of the most influential people for me. And so my sister, who is who is half. Uh, from my mother and half from my from her father, right, um, is as much of a sci-fi nerd and, and sort of science uh, geek as 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 I am. And so clearly, it's you know it's like this 
it's this influence from the people around you and the family and stuff. And I can see that if, that if I didn't have those influences to me and, and that it's really hard, you know, there's other things that you're really focused on. And so I've got to assume that the goal here is to try to build up some of this STEM, you know, experience and excitement and enthusiasm in a community that has lost clearly with the kind those kinds of dropout rates has lost some of their enthusiasm for for education in in general so i mean have you seen some results from this oh yeah yeah the the tribe so at first it was a little difficult for them you know to trust some outsider coming in taking their kids across country uh, and now the tribe is excited about it i have uh, moms asking about their kids wanting to go to it um, it's, it's been great just to see the amount of excitement around space and, you know, their tribal council meeting, they were saying, maybe we'll have the first Jackie astronaut. Yeah. So that is pretty exciting to me. It's definitely made an impact on the community and on the kids. The, you know, doing this kind of an adventure is a pretty elaborate process, you know, to go and <laughs> yeah. find someone and to f fly them to Huntsville and send them to mock space and bring them home and all that. Are there other, has this sort of led to other STEM related activities that you're able to work on in the community itself? Has it been able to encourage other kinds of, of interest? Well, well, what do you exactly do? Well, so I'm like, you know, like, I mean, there's more to space than, oh, yes. than going to space camp, right? Like there are telescopes yes. and there are, I mean, there's a lot, as I mentioned, there's lots of great stuff in the Arizona area that are probably very close to the land and the to the reservation area. And, you know, is there sort of more interaction at a local level as well? Or for you guys, it's just, just taking kids to space camp. Yeah. For us, we're just doing that. We, we started off having, like I said, to build that trust. So yeah. we were going weekly and doing science experiments from, you know, making oblique to, to, putty to you know to right. uh engineering experiments where you're piling things as high as you can to see if it knocks over yeah yeah so, yeah so we've done and we the girls also did a science a science experiment for um science fair for the first time so there have been a little extracurricular stuff but our, definitely our, our main goal is finding the kids to send to space, space camp and, and do you find that you're able to now get those older kids who maybe were a little more tuned out interested again or are you still uh, <laughs> just, they're still just, they're just, they're already out the door. <laughs> I wish. Yeah. Maybe in the future, you know, maybe, and you know, maybe with the girls, our oldest girl is now in junior high. Yeah. So she's at that stage and she's very much into her grades. Uh, she was failing a little bit in math and she asked her teacher for tutoring. So that was huge because we're not too sure if that would have happened pre going to space camp. So maybe as the kids get older, they might affect the other students too. We'll see. Yeah. We're still we're still pretty young on on, on this scale. And Sadie is one I'm thinking of. She's uh, just in junior high, so this is the time, and she's definitely into math and science. She wants to be an astronaut. That's that's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, first person on Mars, probably the yeah. right age to be the she's, one of the first yeah. people on Mars. Yeah. Um, so then, I mean, obviously, this is. Have you sort of looked into this being a model for a larger program? Have other people expressed interest in what you're doing and tried to sort of expand it from there? I hope so. Uh, right now I'm working in San Diego and I'm trying to get tribes from San Diego. And so we're definitely trying to get a bigger thing. 
one of the things we're doing is we're having a conference in space camp at space camp to bring the older members space camp is huge campus and it's kind of hard to think about and to get your mind around it until you're there and once you're there you're just just like this is great it's fantastic so we're thinking if we get some tribal members who are older uh, from around the United States to come out there, they might be a little bit more influenced to help out and to bring more students. So we're working on it. And yeah. uh, next year we're planning the first uh, powwow at Space Camp and uh, Native American Week. So we're, we're we're thinking bigger and hopefully to get more tribes in different ages. That's fantastic. Um, so cool. if people want to find out more, and I guess donate i mean I'm, I'm assuming that if people want yeah. to participate and want to send money your way to send more people to space camp uh you guys are available so where can people go to find out more information uh our uh website which is taking-up-space.org there's a link there to paypal paypal is great because they don't charge for everything like everyone else does so uh just follow the link and we'll take any five dollars ten dollars anything you can would be great because it's all done our funding is all done individual donations so it's and it like i said it's, it gets expensive yeah yeah absolutely well uh thank you so much for taking the time to chat with awesome. us today and thanks for for being the one to lead this program and and make this happen you know it's uh it's got to be great you got to feel great to have given people these experiences so thank you oh thank you for thinking much for having me it's great to be here thank you all right take care bye bye all right that's awesome man I wish I had gone to space camp as a kid. Did anybody go to space anybody camp? Space? No, I have only ever heard of space camp in the movies and TV. I I don't even know what you do there. Yeah, see, you you come to your your spaciness a little later on in in life. You you weren't the mm -hmm. kind of person who uh, would be there at uh, at thirteen, right? I had zero interest in yeah. space until sophomore year of college. Yeah, it's a. So Huntsville, Alabama, they've got a Saturn V rocket there. It's a it's a huge facility, and you go and learn to be an astronaut for six days. And so they teach you how to fly various vehicles, and they teach you how to you know the various equipment they use and the control panels, and learn about rockets and orbits. And it's you know it's it's a camp that you go and you just learn about space and you <laughs> pretend to be an astronaut for a week and you're a kid. Sounds so cool. It doesn't it <laughs> sound cool? Like yeah. Yeah, there's nothing like that here. No. No. Um I nor here. <laughs> Canada but uh, yeah no I think they made a movie or something like that there you go someone's talking about there's a movie in the 1980s but it happened to be released the same week as the Challenger disaster so yeah the timing was a little was a little off um but no I uh yeah I would uh I would definitely Pamela did it Pamela did a did a so she would have been a much better interview this week than me but because she'd actually done it Maybe right. we can arrange a weekly space hangout uh, adventure to space camp if you can do it as adults. Yeah, I I got hilariously I got invited to do a space camp an, an adult space camp. That sounds uh, weird. Um, it does. Yeah. For, as a promotion for a TV show, and just for journalistic integrity purposes, I just couldn't do it. So mm. I'm like, yeah, no, I'm sorry, I can't accept a all expenses paid trip to space camp to hang out with a bunch of astronauts. My journalist integrity is too. Yeah. So anyway, um, I had to turn that down, uh, which was rough. 
All right. Um, Alan, tell us about yes. large exoplanets with the right conditions for life. Well, stop me if you've heard this before, uh, but there's been an announcement that they found an exoplanet that could have life on it. Okay, wait. I'm going to have to stop you right there. What's the what's again yawn? Again, yeah. In fact, this particular world has been in the news before last year. K two eighteen B. Yeah, it was announced uh, originally. Yeah, a world that was found about one hundred and something odd light years away. Uh, thick hydrogen atmosphere with a lot of water in it. And what's changed now is that they've managed to better model the conditions towards the surface, uh, what they could be. So to start off with, this world is eight times more massive than Earth and a little over twice the radius. Uh, it has an atmosphere of hydrogen and helium, but with lots of water in it. And again, the part that they always love to chuck around, the most important thing is that it is within the star's habitable zone, which is such a lovely word. You know, it's, it sounds like yeah. there's jungles and stuff, but when actually all it means is that it is not impossible for liquid water. <laughs> yeah, no. Right. But eight times the mass of the, uh, eight times the mass of the, of the 8.6 times the mass of the earth, 2.6 times the radius Actually, bigger right. radius is, is good news. You're going to have a pretty serious surface gravity. Exactly. So this is rocky. It, Say again. It's probably not a rocky planet. Like most planets, more than one and a half times the size of Earth, aren't rocky. So well, this is coming into it. Yeah. Sorry, sorry. Oh, I was going to say yeah. So so what do they think the planet is like? Is it more like a like a terrestrial planet? Is it more like a like a Neptune? Well, they figure at those, uh, just based on the mass and the, and the radius, it's, it'll some, be somewhere between a super-Earth and a mini-Neptune. And with the modeling, they found three possible models that could fit these, these numbers. So scenario one is a rocky world with a very thick, very hot atmosphere. Uh, but when you say hot and thick, we're talking, oh, I don't even have the temperature, but the pressure is over a million bar. So... <laughs> They call it a rocky world, but right. honestly, to me, that sounds like it sounds like it sounds like Jupiter, or you know, right. it's just, just impossible. Yeah. The second option is more of a mini Neptune, uh, not as hot and not as high pressure, more like seven hundred bar and fifteen hundred kelvins. Which and, again, and just yeah. for comparison, like when we think of Venus, Venus is like four hundred and fifty bar. I forget the exact like Somewhere seventy bar. There, yeah. Wait a minute, and about a third of that temperature. Yeah, I think it's 70 times-ish. So, you know, you're looking at something that's still significantly more atmospheric pressure than than even Venus. Yeah. Uh, their final scenario, uh, and I should mention all three of these models meet exactly uh, you know, on, on, the, on the graph. They all intersect exactly on uh, crossing through the, through the data here. So they're all, I don't want to say equally likely, because the last option, what they call a water world, which they concede in the paper is the least likely. Wah, wah. It's merely it's merely a little bit hot and a little bit high pressure, so 560 Kelvin and 130 bar. But at those conditions, it works out that unlike the others in this one, liquid water can exist uh, as, a, as opposed to being turned into some weird exotic form of ice that exactly is, yeah, you know is sure. crystalline and would crush you to to an atom thickness. 
Yeah. I believe they said the other two, the water would exist in a supercritical state, which was new to me. I had to look, I had to look that up. Uh, it's an interesting phase. It's, um, yeah. But yeah, on the water world scenario, although it's very, very hot and very high pressure, liquid water can exist. And they argue passionately that, you know, extremophiles, uh, life forms on Earth can exist at those temperatures and at those pressures. It's equivalent to the bottom of the Marianas Trench. It's very high pressure. And that's at the surface. Yeah. Yeah, that's not even like what would be the pressure down at the bottom of this enormous ocean. Yeah. Uh, so it's not inconceivable, but there are two other points which they, even in the paper, they gloss over slightly. Uh, it's orbiting a red dwarf. <laughs> so, <laughs> which we know are very unstable. You know, they, they throw up huge flares, a lot of radiation around there. But... Honestly, to me, the interesting thing is not, I mean, they always they have to hype up the life, of course, because that's more newsworthy. But what I think is interesting here is the fact that they're able to model these conditions to that extent. And this just comes from knowing the mass of the planet, its radius, and a little bit of spectroscopic analysis of the atmosphere as it, as it transits. So I still think it's pretty cool, even though there's no life there. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, I think these are the kinds of worlds that will be the sorts of targets that they're really going to want to see with James Webb and some of these upcoming planetary characterizing missions like yeah. Ariel and some of the ground-based observatories. I mean, they're specifically waiting for James Webb now to to get more detail and yeah. Yeah, so because it's only it's merely 126 light years away. Um 124 light years mm -hmm. away so that's relatively close and should be and it's orbiting a, a red a red dwarf an m dwarf so it's easier to to observe um mm. moya you're our exoplanetary uh, uh expert uh, how yeah. do you feel about this kind of a, a world um i mean the world exists it's out there i don't have feelings about the world itself but i have a lot of feelings about the way that people will represent these types of worlds and to the public um I, I don't, Alan, I don't know if you were reading like the, the paper that came out or a, an article that was written kind of like secondhand from the paper, but so often you see these kind of sensationalized headlines reporting, we found a new habitable planet. And if you just ask like two or three questions about the planet, you would quickly realize that it's not habitable based on the various criteria that we have. I, I don't know. So, I, so okay. So, I think this is a an interesting thing to bring up. Like, do you should there be some new terms, some new, some new definitions of terms, so that we can try to manage? You know, perhaps you were speaking to the publisher of a space news website. Of what recommendations would you have to try to rein in um, his writers? Yeah, I I guess. Maybe this isn't realistic, but I would hope that if I were a scientist and I, if I were the scientist who had studied this planet, I would try and hype up the methods. Yes. Uh, you know, if we if we used cool new tools and methods to find interesting information about this planet, I would want to focus on those instead of trying to make the research exciting by kind of tricking people into thinking that it's a potentially habitable world when it definitely. Isn't. <laughs> Almost certainly, yeah. In the best then. case scenario, is a horrible place. Mm -hmm. Yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah, um, but but also sort of. I mean, what I love is to find worlds that are different from what we know. 
because it yeah. fills in all of these pieces. So to have a world that is orbiting a, an M dwarf, well, that's something that we don't have here. Um, to have an or planet that's this size and maybe has these kinds of, of chemical constituents, these kinds of densities at different levels, is pretty exciting stuff and fills in a lot of the puzzle pieces for what's for what's out there. Um, but I, you know, I, I totally agree. But you know, maybe we just have to get numb to it, you know, like, we need to have we need to know of 10s of 1000s. I mean, we're already like, I remember a time when we would report on exoplanet discoveries. Yeah, maybe it is a generational thing. Because when I, I've never lived in a world that didn't know exoplanets existed for sure. Because uh, the first exoplanet was discovered before I was born. <laughs> 95? Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, and by the time I got into astronomy, we had already kind of moved past the era when people were getting super excited about individual detections and we're moving more towards characterizing exoplanets. Yeah. So maybe it's a generational thing. And to me and people kind of in my astronomy cohort, individual exoplanets just aren't that exciting. Yeah. Alan, you, you definitely approached it with a little more, I guess, sensitivity. Um, is that sort of the way, you know, you as a, as a journalist like me, you realize the sort of, you know, the traps that you could fall into? Well, it's hard to miss because every press release tries to push the same angle, right? It's they've found life or they've, or there'll be something really exciting about it. Like, oh, this is a world where diamonds reign or, yeah. or something like that. And when you dig up the paper itself, um, which they don't make it hard to find, but they do make it hard to read uh, for, for the general public. Um, and then you realize that these are the absolute edge cases. You know, this is, we're really stretching the bounds of what's likely, but not what's impossible. Um, and I tried to, you know, just point out, you know, it probably isn't the case. We shouldn't get excited until we actually know, <laughs> yeah. you know? Yeah. It's, it's tough though. You know, like sometimes the headline is different from the article, you know, mm. I, as the publisher, will often just come up with the headline that I think that's going to get the most clicks and then let the article do a good job of, of educating people properly. And right. sometimes I feel a little dirty, um, having to mm. do that to bring people in and then, but I know that as long as we are, we are properly educating them about what's being found, I, I don't feel quite so bad. But it's don't definitely bury that too far down the article. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You don't want to bury it, right? Sorry to yeah. suck you into this this amazing <laughs> news, but I'm gonna let you down. Yeah, yeah. You gotta be. You gotta strike that balance. Mm. Um, Moya, let's talk about uh, details from Insight. Yeah. Uh, so earlier this week, I think six new papers from uh, with date with results from data from Insight were published. Uh, in various journals, including like Nature and Science, I think. Uh, so there's a whole bunch of new stuff to talk about. And I uh, kind of zeroed in on some information about Mars quakes. Uh, so kind of seismic activity on Mars, which I thought was interesting because it kind of connects to my first year research project that I did in grad school um, about topography on planets in and out of our solar system. So um, the headline is that InSight detected about 450 Mars quakes, um, which is hard to say. Like, it, it, I'm still getting used to saying Mars quakes. Mars quakes, uh, yeah. <laughs> Mars quakes. Uh, Earthquakes so on Mars. Yeah. 
so they detected about 450 of these since it landed uh, on Mars in November of 2018. Uh, and I'll give some background information about InSight for those who aren't too familiar. Uh, InSight, the name stands for uh, Interior Exploration Using Seismic Investigations, Geodesy, Geodesy, and Heat Transport. Uh, so it's an instrument that was designed to detect seismic activities, so these waves and shocks going through the, the land on Mars, uh, and they were probing heat signatures underneath its surface. So it has these two uh, types of instruments. It has a bunch of seismometers, seismographs, seismic instruments that will detect these shakes, and it has a heat probe that will burrow under the surface of Mars, and it's uh, kind of affectionately called the mole. Right. Which is nice, even though it's having some trouble. Yeah, yeah, that's that hasn't <laughs> so worked out so well. Yeah, they're, they're getting really creative with how they're actually planning to get it uh, deep enough into the surface to do what it needs to do. So let's talk about the, the, the seismic activity, and then we'll shift into yeah. some of these other results as well. Yeah, for sure. Uh, so the, the shakes themselves, most of them are, are really small. In fact, the biggest of these shakes would only register about a three or four on the Richter scale, which uh, I've never sat through an earthquake, but I read up on the Richter scale and that's not enough to damage a house. And probably if you're used to earthquakes would be enough, like you experience it and then you just go back to your, what yeah. you were doing before. As someone uh, who lives in the ring of fire, um, <laughs> yes, I think that's accurate. Yeah, so they're uh, really small. It is always unnerving. You okay? You never are like, huh? Another earthquake? Whatever. No, no. You're oh. always like, is this is this it? Is this the big one? Is this when it gets worse? No, no. It's uh, it is always an uncomfortable experience. Well, if you move to Mars, you could probably rest easily knowing that a Mars quake would not be. The it will never be a big. Yeah. 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 Um, the really cool thing about these Mars quakes is that they aren't, they don't have the same uh, cause as earthquakes. So earthquakes are caused by uh, tectonic plates kind of sliding against each other or hitting each other, moving over and under each other. But there isn't tectonic plate movement on Mars. Uh, there used to be, but it stopped billions of years ago. So instead, these Mars quakes are caused by the gradual cooling of the planet as the planet cools from its uh, original composition four and a half billion years ago, it contracts. Uh, and when it does that, the, the stuff that Mars is made of has to contract with it, and that creates these ripples, which will cause these Mars quakes. And you've seen this in play on Earth, if you've ever like baked brownies or done a clay mask, right? You see the cracks appear as it cools and, uh, and dries. Right. Uh, so it's exactly like that. And so, I mean the is this as do you know do you think, know if this was like what they were expecting is this more than they were expecting i mean does this mean that that mars is a lot more seismic, seismically active than than they were expecting to see i think it's about what they were expecting right uh and from what i've read some of them are even disappointed that it's not more active <laughs> Not, because, not necessarily because they expected it to be more active, but because if they had just a couple of really big Mars quakes, they'd be able to get a more accurate map of Mars's interior. Right, so they're waiting for the big one. Yeah. Martian style. Um, and, and we don't know if there's going to be a big one because we don't know enough about how Mars's interior works. Yeah, yeah. it's almost like the, the, 
the strength of the of the Mars quakes that you get allows you to dig deeper down into the subsurface of the of the planet and without the that without those big heavy quakes mm-hmm. you don't get that but that wasn't the only thing that they detected with no. this release of all these science papers so what else did they find no it wasn't uh so one cool thing they found was that uh the the pattern and the way that the shakes uh hit the seismometers indicate that the soil is moist uh so it indicates that there's probably some water mixed in with the rocks under mars's surface which is really cool but they don't they don't know if that's actually what's happening um another thing is that they uh, the strongest of the quakes were coming from this one region on Mars called Cerberus Fosse, mm-hmm. I think, uh, which has, we know from the surface that it has these lava flows. And so they think that it maybe has these really strong quakes because there are magma chambers underneath this region that are contracting really quickly and causing these big quakes. Um, and another thing that Insight found, uh, one of the many things that I actually read up on was they found a, a much stronger than expected local magnetic field. Uh, so Mars doesn't have a global magnetic field. It lost it long time ago. And that's one of the reasons Mars doesn't have an atmosphere. Uh, but they, there's a really strong local magnetic field uh, around this Cerberus Fosse point and around where the uh, insight is. Yeah. And, you know, I'd heard that it was 10, 10 times stronger than they had attempted to measure from from orbit mm-hmm. and that it's more than than you could get from the rocks in the local environment. So it's probably coming from deep underground on on Mars, like more ancient rock formations are generating mm-hmm. a magnetic field that's that's piercing up and and extending out above the surface of, of Mars, which is super interesting to sort of imagine that that's, you know, that, that you probably have these bubbles of, of magnetic activity that are that are kind of coming out around across the surface of Mars, depending on on what's going on underneath. Yeah. Yeah, really cool stuff. Um, and then they also detected dust devils, which I think is really cool. Oh, I didn't read about that. Yeah, so they they were able to like the they don't have a any microphone or uh, you know, but but the but they actually are able both with their they have a pressure sensor and they're able to detect various weather events that are happening around it, and so they detected thousands of dust devils passing close to the close to the lander. And so it really seems like that they're just nonstop, constantly Mm. passing by. I mean, they've only been there for a couple of years now. And yet, you know, thousands of dust devils passing close to the lander, you're looking on average of of many a day that are being generated and swirling around. So it's, it's still pretty scientifically fascinating. The, you know, the, the pressure sensors, all this kind of stuff, and as well as the seismometer, that's half of the science. The other one is this heat probe that you mentioned, the mole. Mm-hmm. It still hasn't had a chance to do its job yet. No, it's struggling. So uh, it, it's supposed to burrow. I think it's supposed to get uh, it, 10 meters sounds like too much. 10, 10 inches? Three meters? Three meters? Okay. Yeah, 10 feet. It's supposed to get some distance underneath the surface. Um, and that, that distance is so that it, the heat signatures that it's detecting, they know that it's from underneath the surface and not from uh, like the sun or anything from, from above the surface. But it's having a lot of trouble actually getting that deep. Uh, the 
the explanation that I read said that the it was because the Martian soil was slippier, uh, was more was more slippery yeah. uh, than the than the team accounted for, and the probe needs a lot of friction to actually be able to dig underneath the surface. Yeah, that's what I heard too. That like every time they they hit it with the with the rock hammer it goes down and then just bounces, it just bounces mm -hmm. back up because it's sort of kicking itself back up. And normally you would expect it to go keep, you know, keep going down bit by bit by yeah. bit. It was just kicking itself back up each time it was, it was recoiling. And so they weren't mm -hmm. getting anywhere. They tried one idea, which was to push the shovel and put that on top of the, of the mole, but they got it. They've got a new plan, I think. Yeah, it's something that I'm having a hard time picturing in my head, so I probably won't be able to explain it well, but something about like using the the arm, there are multiple arms. So there's the arm with the mole, and then there's some other arm that like picks things up and moves them, and they're using the other arm to, to brace it. Yeah, they're going to lean on it. Yeah. Yeah. And so and the, they've got like, from that. yeah, and so they're going to lean on the mole and try to just really push it down. And the hope is... That if it can get down far enough, then it will get material on top of it, and that will help provide some of that friction so that it can then mm -hmm. continue driving down. But until they're able to, like right now, they're just not even able to get it any depth down below without it just really just kind of flopping back out onto the surface of Mars. So it's been it's been incredibly frustrating. But yeah. still, I mean, just the, the science that has come from this one... Uh, part of the mission already is, is pretty amazing just to know yeah. that that there's this level of seismic activity on another planet is 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 amazing mm -hmm. seismic activity that is not the same as ours yeah mars quake um all right well you've got one more story for us but before yeah, we do that I, oh you will let's, let's do your story and then and then how much time we have left over i'll talk about phobos so go ahead just just real fast i feel like it it wouldn't be right to have uh this week's weekly space hangout without talking about Captain Johnson who uh, passed away on Monday. Um, I, you know, Captain Johnson was the, the woman who worked at NASA and did a lot of the math to calculate the trajectories for Alan Shepard, um, his first flight around the, in orbit around the earth. Um, and, you know, she, she became famous in 2016 when Margot Lee Shetterly's book Hidden Figures came out. And then again, when the movie came out, uh, I just wanted to to mention that. Yeah. Hundred and one. Yeah. We should all be so lucky to to make it to hundred and one. That's yeah. Uh, she lived a long and incredible life. Yeah. Has a presidential medal of freedom yeah. from President Obama. Did you see the? Someone did a cartoon. Have you seen this cartoon? It's like a chalkboard, yeah. and she's like all of her math, and the astronauts are walking up the math, and, and yeah, making and it like to the stairs. Moon. Yeah, like stairs to the moon. Uh, absolutely uh, inspiring. Yeah, I love the movie. I, I, w I, I would love to know how, I mean, they always sort of uh, mess with the reality when they tell these mm -hmm. kinds of biopics, but I would love to know just sort of how closely connected and how realistic all the various events were. In, yeah, the, the uh, book, the story. Uh, I think, is completely accurate. It's not fictionalized at all. The movie right. is very slightly fictionalized. Right, yeah. Yeah, no, it's a great movie. So if you and if you haven't seen Hidden Figures, it's it's fantastic. It's a very heartwarming movie. I really enjoyed yeah. it. Uh, well, um, that's sad, but sad. again, hundred and one. 
that's uh, that's a pretty impressive life. And yeah, you can't ask for much more than that. Yeah, exactly. Um, all right, so uh, before we do wrap up, so the Japanese space agency, JAXA, announced uh, late last week that they're going to be sending their own probe to Phobos. Now, this is a mission that they've actually been working on for a couple of, of years. It's called the Martian Moon Explorer, which they've shortened to MMX. And the plan right now, it's going to be sort of following on a lot of the technology of the Hayabusa mission, Hayabusa 2. So the plan is sometime, probably as early as 2024, they're going to send us, they're going to fly a spacecraft to Mars. It's going to make sort of orbital flybys of Phobos and Deimos. And then once it's taken a whole bunch of images of both Phobos and Deimos, it's going to settle in into orbit around Phobos and then get lower and lower and then ideally land on Phobos and collect a sample. And if it's even more ambitious, they're hoping to release a rover on the surface of Phobos, uh, which will then go and find an appropriate spot and do a core sample. So it's actually going to go and drill down about 10 centimeters and try to bring back a, a chunk of Phobos that comes from beneath the surface, bring that back to the spacecraft. Spacecraft's going to take off, fly back to Earth, send a return capsule that then the, the uh, planetary scientists can, can study. And they actually considered both Deimos and Phobos, but in the end, Phobos is a lot more of an interesting target. I mean, and and the reason for this, you know, one of the big questions that, that, that planetary scientists still have is what is the source of Phobos and Deimos? Were they captured asteroids? Because they sure look like asteroids, but they have a lot of clues that it seems like they were actually... Uh, remnants from some ancient collision with Mars that then threw them out as as rubble into space. Um, and so this is the big question that astronomers would love to be able to to answer. But the other thing that's even, you know, possibly a, as interesting is that Phobos is kind of a dust collector for all of the big impacts that have happened on Mars over the billions of years of its history. And so large meteors are smashing into into Mars, blasting debris out into space and Phobos orbits so quickly around and so close to the surface of Mars, that it's scooping up this material and building it into layers on its own regolith. And so the idea is that if you go and you send a spacecraft and you dig out this core sample from the surface of, of, of Phobos, and you bring that home and you keep it in order, you've pretty much got a historical record of all of the big events that have happened to Mars over history. So it's like one of the most useful history um, uh, places you can go, archaeological digs you can go to find out information on, on Mars itself. So for that reason as well, it's a really fascinating mission. The hope is fly out by 2024, have the return sample back here on Earth by 2029. And this isn't the first time that that a mission has been attempted to go to Phobos. There was, of course, the Russians Phobos grunt mission, which failed back in 2011. And this, unfortunately, the mission was supposed to go and collect like a lot of material, like kilograms of material from Phobos and then come back to Earth. But it launched had a problem with its upper stage motor and was sort of left in low Earth orbit. And then a couple of years later, it returned back to Earth and, and burned up. And so that mission never, I mean, it got off the ground, but it didn't actually make it to Phobos. So 
So this is sort of one of the first serious missions of Phobos. The total budget for this mission is about 440 million US, which is higher. It's like roughly double what the Hayabusa mission, Hayabusa 2 mission was. But still, to have a sample return, a lander, a rover, tons of science experiments going to Phobos and collecting all this material and bringing it back within such a short time frame, it's it's pretty exciting. And, you know, one sort of long-term thing with Phobos as well is that it is one of the few places that human beings could theoretically explore. It actually serves as a really great way station for going down and exploring the surface of Mars itself. You build up a tiny base on Phobos, astronauts fly there, rest, recuperate, grab a drink of water, and then they take some kind of descent vehicle down to the surface of Mars and then come back up hang out on Phobos a little more and then make the journey back home. And so you can imagine groups of astronauts, they fly to Phobos, then they fly down to Mars and, and back and forth to make this journey to Mars. And it could make a more sort of safer, more redundant series of, of, of exploration steps. And so the more we can learn about Phobos and especially attempting to, to maneuver in a gravity well that's in a gravity well. And so one of the real challenges that's never been attempted really before is the fact that you've got Phobos. I mean, the moon is kind of like this, but you've got Phobos so close to Mars. And so it has this tiny gravity well, kind of like what Rosetta had to experience going to Comet um, 67P, where you've got this really low gravity and it's really tricky to try and send a lander down to the surface, but it's in the gravity well of Mars. And so Phobos is turning and you've got all of the, you know, what you're experiencing from as all of the gravitational sort of influence of Mars and to try and work in that environment is going to be really challenging. And yet, if this is a thing that we want to do in the future with human beings, better to learn this now. So, so hats off to the Japanese. Um, I'm, I'm a huge fan of the, uh, of the various Japanese missions. I find they pack more creativity and, and sort of, uh, I don't know, daring, uh, into their missions than, than almost anything I've ever seen. When you look at the, just the shenanigans that went on with the Hayabusa 2 mission, ion engines, multiple landers, they shot an anti-tank weapon at the asteroid, uh, you know, I'm really looking forward to the various combinations that they, they plan for this mission. So, um, I can't wait to see what it looks like to drive a Rover yeah. <laughs> on such a, a world with such low gravity. You know? Yeah. Although who's got the most experience at this kind of work? It's, 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 it's Jackson. Yeah. The high Bruce missions both did the same. Yeah, absolutely. And they, um, with Hayabusa, they they did a collaboration with uh, with the German Aerospace Center and a collaboration with the French, as well as NASA contributed some some experiments as well. And so the same is planned for this mission as well. So they're probably going to work with the Germans to build the mm -hmm. actual rover. Uh, the French are going to be on board working with this. NASA is probably going to provide um, a gamma ray spectrometer. And, and then of course the, the work they did. So it's going to feel a lot like Hayabusa 2, but expanded and extended for a more interesting mission. So, uh, I'm so glad that, you know, they've been in, in thinking about it for the last three years and they've actually decided to, to go ahead and start the development now. Hmm. So, um, I can't wait. <laughs> 
Um, well, we've reached uh, nearly the end of our show. Uh, Alan, you are on my screen right now. So if people want to find out more about what you're working on, what are you working on? At the moment, I'm writing for, <clears throat> I'm writing for Space in Africa, uh, which <laughs> I've also forgotten the URL. <laughs> I believe it's, <laughs> I think it's africaspace.news. Um, or you can just Google the name. Yeah. Um, and I'm about to, in the next few weeks, we'll be launching the third season of the Urban Astronomer podcast, which will follow the same formula as the previous episode, you know, a mix of interviews with astronomers in, in, in Africa and, um, and my silken voice explaining <laughs> basic science concepts. Um, yeah, or you can find me on social media at uastronomer. Perfect. Uh, Moya, what are you working on? I am trying my hardest to wrap up a paper for research right now uh, about my my look into how common stellar encounters are in the center of the Milky Way galaxy. And I'm getting ready for my second uh, live show uh, that I'm hosting at a space called Caveat in New York City, where I combine astronomy and folklore uh, for a, a lesson in fictional world building. So can you give a spoiler alert here? Of how often do stellar encounters happen in the uh, in the core of the Milky Way? Uh, I yeah, I'll say that. Uh, my research shows that about eighty percent of stars uh, should have at least one encounter within a thousand AU every billion years. Right. Compared to us here, we don't get anything like that. We no, definitely not. We can expect to have maybe one encounter uh in the next 10 million years but it's the chances are really low right um I, i'm finding that most stars more than half of the stars in the center of the galaxy have hundreds of these encounters right uh, every billion years yeah which then leads to questions about habitability in that in that region yeah yeah awesome um <laughs> cool well uh and of course where can people find out more about what you're working on uh, you can follow me on Twitter uh, or Instagram, but I'm more active on Twitter. Uh, my handle is GoAstroMo. Perfect. All right. And uh, if it sounded like I knew a lot about the Phobos mission, that's because we did a whole video on that, and that's going to be coming out on Friday. So stick around, uh, I hope, on Friday. Um, uh, since we won't be doing astronomy cast, I'll probably release that at, at noon at the more normal uh, time that we do. So uh, stick around for, for that part. Uh, let me bring everybody back onto the screen. Um, thank you, everybody, for watching us today. Thanks to the moderators. Special thanks to, to Nancy Graziano, of course, as usual, for helping to organize uh, our guests and all the work that we do. We couldn't do this without you. Um, thanks to the mods hanging out in the chat. Everybody on Twitch, we see you. Um, and, uh, we will see all of you, uh, next week and I'll be here cause I won't be traveling. So thanks everybody. Bye. All right. Let me press the stop button.